This is the podcast for God's Honest Truth. These are stories that are told by members of First Presbyterian Church of Arlington Heights. Each time we get together, we have a theme, and the members of our church tell stories based around that theme. I hope you enjoy. Well, good evening. It's wonderful to see you all here tonight. We uh, began the God's Honest Truth storytelling series uh, one year ago. This was, we, did, we did this one year ago, and I actually wasn't here for the first one of these. Uh, my mom, she got sick, and she actually ended up passing away last year, so it was at this time, and so I couldn't be present for when we actually did this particular evening. I had to listen to it on audio, but since then, I've been at all of them, and they've been amazing evenings to participate and be a part of, and I thank you for coming out tonight to listen to the storytellers who are going to tell their stories, which are, uh, they They've worked very hard on them, and uh, they're really wonderful. And again, I just want to reiterate why we do this, which is that um, as a community, we come together often, and uh, we kind of come in on Sunday, we say hello, and then we just leave, and we go off kind of on our own, right? And uh, we don't really get to know each other, and you all have all of these amazing stories in your lives that you are uh, able to tell, and we wanted to provide a venue where you could actually do that, because it's through the opportunity of being able to tell these stories that we get to know each other a lot better. And so uh, tonight our storytelling theme is lighthouse stories, stories of people who have been guiding lights in our lives. And so we have five amazing storytellers for you this evening, and the first storyteller who we have up tonight is Cynthia Hiskus, and she's going to tell her story steering the ship. Come on up and welcome her to the stage. Thanks, Alex. Um, No pressure with uh, amazing storytellers we have with us tonight. Um, uh, But really, thanks. I um, am really happy to be here tonight. Um, When Alex asked me to do this, it was quite easy for me to say yes, because I really enjoy doing this kind of work and having this opportunity. Um, It was also really nice to go through the process, and I'm not sure if the other storytellers would agree, but there was a lot of like self-reflection and learning that went on. So this was, um, it was really beneficial for me as well, and hopefully you'll get some tidbits out of it too. Uh, before I get to telling you about my lighthouse person, I wanted to tell you a little bit about myself, because I think that might be helpful. Is there anyone out there who is a middle child? Middle child, middle child, okay, oh, Stephanie, all right, great. So um, I think some of you will really relate to some of this uh, story that I have to tell, because I am a middle child, and as is traditional for a middle child, I, um, I very much value harmony and seek that. So um, as when I kind of find myself, whenever I'm in a situation where there's discord, I usually try to step in and create some harmony or, or restore it. As a child, that manifested itself in me making other people happy. So doing whatever it was I could to make other people happy. And at that time, it meant being well-behaved and obedient. Um, and pretty much doing whatever it was that I was supposed to do. So I excelled academically. I played sports. I was in plays. I spent most of Saturday afternoons watching this old house, the French chef, the frugal gourmet, and the German painter essentially trying to learn anything that I could do so I could do more of it. Um, 
so that was fun, and that was kind of who I was. As I turned into, as I turned to junior high, I started becoming more interested in self-help books, and I read those because I was really curious about why do people do what they do, and why do they make the choices that they make. And um, I didn't go to sports camp. Uh, I went to leadership camp, and I really liked it. I, li I liked it a lot. Um, so that gives you a little bit of picture of me. Um, and, and then in, in high school. I excelled in math and science, so my parents, teachers, and advisors all were directing me towards engineering, um, which is pretty, makes sense if those are two areas that you're strong in. And I, um, I was ex applied to, accepted, and ultimately graduated from the College of Engineering at the University of Illinois, and I hated it. Um, I didn't hate college itself, I just really didn't like the engineering curriculum. Uh, it was really hard and it was really pretty boring in my estimation. So I turned to things that were a lot more interesting to me, a lot more effortless for me, student organizations, classes in architecture and philosophy, um, essentially finding things that were kind of filling me up in other ways. So I, I think it's safe to say I'm a creative soul who's developed a sense of responsibility and has been guided by an analytical education. Um, so after I graduated from college, I began my career with Procter & Gamble in Green Bay, Wisconsin. I developed a relationship with someone who was then and continues to be now a mentor for me. I um, was a young manager and I was learning how to coach and develop people. And I was also learning about who I was, who I wanted to be, and what it was that I wanted to do. So in my early 20s, probably into my late 20s, I pretty much wanted to do and be everything. A little bit of a carryover from my childhood. And um, have you ever heard the saying, you can have it all, you just can't have it all at once? I didn't think that that was true for me. I was pretty sure that I could have it all and I could have it all at once. And for people who um, weren't as excited about all of my ideas as I was, I would get kind of frustrated with them and uh, a little frustrated that they weren't getting on board fast enough to help me deliver what it was that we needed to deliver and what it was that we needed to do. You see, for me, doing was connected to happiness. So the more I did, the happier I would be, and the happier I could make other people. My first job at P&G was as a team manager. I was responsible for 30 people who made facial tissue, puffs facial tissue, on a manufacturing line. I was responsible for their safety, the quality of the product that they made, and ultimately the reliability. After a few years, I um, had responsibility for more teams and eventually became the manager of that department. Um, then I was promoted to a human resources manager role. Okay, um, at, I didn't choose that, but um, at P&G or probably any other large firm, if any of you are familiar with them, you don't really choose. You just go and do what they tell you you're gonna do next. And I was obedient and, and I did that. So I was a human resources manager and my first assignment in this role was to help reduce the number of grievances that were unnecessarily escalated to the plant manager. Um, this was a union plant, and in a union plant, the way you resolve issues is you file a grievance. I'm a union worker, I have a problem, I file a grievance to my manager, the manager addresses it, we're done. The manager doesn't address it, it goes to the next level, to the next level, all the way to the plant manager. So what was happening is people were taking their grievance directly 
to the plant manager, thinking that, hey, this is the way for me to get the most immediate and satisfactory resolution. The problem was, it wasn't really very efficient. Um, that might address the symptom of the cause, but it really, really rarely addressed the root cause. So essentially, the whole process was causing more problems than it was actually solving. Now, I have a feeling I was put into this role because I have a knack for diplomacy and a desire to create harmony. And um, so I was pretty excited after I did my problem solving to get to work on this plan and do something about it. So did my problem solving, came up with a great solution, was really excited about it, and was ready to present it to union leadership. And I did it, and I thought they would love it, and they didn't. <laughs> so why didn't they? I figured out, well, it wasn't just about me saying and doing. It was about them also understanding, agreeing, and engaging to make this work. So. Oh, but they didn't come to me that quickly. This is where my lighthouse leader comes in. So I went and spent some time with John. John, who is my lighthouse leader, he was also the labor relations manager at the plant at the time. And in addition to that, he was a captain in the Navy. He spent six years in active duty, 24 years in the Naval Reserve, he had seven commanding officer positions and was in charge of as many as 240 people at one time. He kind of knows a lot about leadership. So John told me, leadership is really about three things. It's about knowing yourself, it's about knowing your people, and it's about knowing your business. Okay, that makes sense. It is your job to set the vision, define the goal, and let your people know that failure is not an option. You need to have the courage to right the ship when things get off track. Other than that, you kind of step back and get out of the way and let people do what they need to do. All right, so my job was not to just tell people what to do. That was a learning. Nor was it my job to make a list of everything that people were supposed to do and do it myself. That was another learning. Um, my job was really to help people get to where they wanted to go and need to go. So with all this great knowledge, I'm taking that back and going, all right. I then met with union leadership, co-created the training and tools that were necessary to solve the problem. I helped create the vision, worked with them to define the goals and what was gonna be most impactful to those people who were impacted by the situation. To the business, it meant saving time, which in a manufacturing plant really means saving money. So that's good for the business, good. And uh, for the people, what for the employees, what that meant was more job security and uh, a healthier work environment, good for them. So now we've got harmony in both places, everybody wins. So fantastic. Um, that was great, but John had one more piece of advice for me. He told me that you need to be patient. <laughs> For a doer, that is not an easy thing. So he said you need to be patient and you need to watch your people and know when they need you. You need to be ready to step in when that happens and don't do it too soon and don't do it too hard and don't do it too fast. 
But you need to be ready when they need you, not when you think you need to do something. Well, geez, <laughs> that is a learning for me. That is a new one. And that is something that I didn't really quite understand until I was actually in the situation. And thinking about the context of him commanding a battleship is really helpful when I'm thinking about this lesson. So kind of go with me on this one. You know, battleships are big. Uh, they, um, they don't move very fast, and they're not very easy to move. You don't push them. You don't pull them to get them to move. And you really don't do it by yourself. So this provides me a lot of context for thinking about how I lead and how maybe we all lead. Um, so you don't do any of those things. What you do is, is you steer. You make small adjustments every so often to ultimately make big impacts. And it doesn't necessarily happen right away. So how does this get to being a lighthouse person? Well, all of this kind of um, taught me on how you navigate your way to that harbor, right? You, you define where you're going, you let people know what the guardrails are, and you kind of just stand back and steer. Um, you know, in my world where I want to create and do everything, it helped me realize that the things that I want to create and do, if I'm depending only upon myself to do it, I'm going to be limited. If I can engage other people, then I can multiply those impacts. And that's the piece that's really powerful for me. That's the wisdom his experiences help to depart on me. Depart? Impart? On me. So as a married, career-oriented mother of three and a dog, I'll include the dog, shall we? Uh, <laughs> um, I still find it really challenging, and I still want to do everything and be everything. I don't know that that necessarily goes away. But I do know that I... Um, I'm not only relying upon myself to do that, that there are other people around who can help and who can, I, I can engage. And if I can enlist their help, if I can steer myself and make small changes every day with myself and others, that will ultimately help me navigate to a life that is enjoyable and harmonious for us all. Thanks. All right, next up we have Stephen Smith with his story, Do You Believe in Miracles? Welcome him to the stage. Thank you. All right, are you still with me? I think I heard a, uh, a famous pastor say that one time. Are you I just wanted to do that, I always wanted to be up here and say, are you still with me? This is, uh, this is a story about my wife, Julie. My wife, Julie, is right here. Usually we sit in the back row, but tonight she's in a wheelchair and we had plenty of room to move up here. So this story is about her and is dedicated to her. Uh, Julie and I have been members of First Presbyterian Church for almost 40 years. Um, 
I really didn't attend church very much until I met her, so she really turned me on to church, and we uh, have been faithful members. Learned a lot uh, through Bible study. A lot of the members of this church have really helped us throughout the years. So the 40 years that we've been here have been really remarkable. Um, on December 19, 2006, um, I graduated from Illinois Institute of Technology with a PhD in biology. This degree took me almost 10 years to complete. I completed this part-time while I was working full-time for Baxter Healthcare, so it was not an easy thing to do. Um, this today was a proud culmination of all the work and achievement that Julie had helped me with. Uh, without her support, I, would, I wouldn't have made it. So I obviously uh, am appreciative of everything that she's done. Interesting, my family attended the ceremony at uh, IIT. Uh, I now have six grandkids. I think at the time I had four. I can't remember. I lost track. Maybe Amy can, maybe Amy can help me. Uh, and they watched me go across the stage. So it was really a nice evening. We watched, uh, you know, we had, got the diploma and everything. So that was really great. Uh, little did I realize that our lives were really going to change drastically in the next two weeks. Uh, my faith, our faith, was tested on New Year's Eve uh, that year when July, uh, Julie became ill and uh, unresponsive at our lake house. We have a lake house up north near Fox Lake. And her and I were alone. Um, couldn't figure out what was going on. I called 911. Uh, she was transported to Northern Illinois Medical Center, which is up near McHenry. Good hospital, by the way. Her blood pressure was 60 over 30. Uh, the doctors told me she had a 5% chance of surviving. Uh, the, ER, the ER doctors worked diligently to save her life. Uh, they couldn't figure out the cause of illness. They were asking me, is she on drugs? What's going on? I said, no, none of that. Um, this it all culminated to me at this time, though. I was about to lose my best friend and my partner for life, and all of a sudden it just dawned on me. So, again, Julie had been supportive of everything for me and was everything for me, so I had to figure out what was what to do next. So immediately called our daughter, Amy, who was at home in Arlington Heights, where we've lived for 40 years. And I said, you know, you better get to the hospital as soon as possible. We're not really sure what's going to happen with mom. So the next morning, she still was here. Uh, we were watching the uh, monitor in her hospital room. And you know the oxygen saturation that's on there usually is around 90% for a normal person. Well, Julie's had dropped to 80%. And the nurse came in, and she brought us into the room. She said, I don't think this looks good. You guys better, you guys better prepare for the worst. So um, we did. Amy and I grabbed hands over Julie um, and held hands, and we prayed. And this is the miracle, is <laughs> the monitor started to go up 90%. The oxygen rate kept going up. And lo and behold, she was still here. And with all that, you know, you, you're, we remember what Jesus said, where two or more gathered in my name, I am there also. And so I kept thinking of that prayer while, you know, we're praying over Julie. And, you know, this is obviously a person that we dearly loved and wanted to not lose. We couldn't stand the thought of losing her. So God had answered our prayers. 
the nurses and the doctors were completely astonished. They were, there was no medicine. There was no intervention at all. It was simply two people holding hands and praying over someone that they cared about. So we didn't know what was going on. The diagnosis eventually came back that Julie had bacterial meningitis. Um, she was in a vegetative state for the next four weeks. She was still in ICU this whole time. I dreaded the neurologists when they came every day because they would just give me bad news and tell me there's nothing we can really do. So what I tried to do in my, you know, I have a medical background, so I checked nursing homes, I checked hospitals, I checked other places for her to go. And nothing really seemed very good until one of the doctors at the hospital and one of the nurses also said to us, um, why don't you try taking her home? You know, sometimes when people go home, they hear, they smell, they can wake up. So we're like, what do we got to lose? So transported her back to Arlington Heights. We set up a uh, hospital room in our dining room, uh, complete with a tracheotomy, uh, feeding tubes, uh, urine bags, everything you can imagine. So I was the day nurse. I'm sorry, I was the night nurse. Amy was the day nurse. And uh, this went on for about a week. And then finally, um, Julie woke up. And she sat up in bed. I was at work, of course. Missed the whole thing. Um, you know, I've been waiting all this time. And Amy said, called and said, you got to come home. Mom's awake. So came home, and lo and behold, there she was sitting up on the bed, on the edge of the bed. She still had the trach in, so she couldn't talk, couldn't figure out what was going on, couldn't figure out you know, everything that was happening with her. Didn't know the extent of the damage from the bacterial meningitis at all. So luckily, in a couple more days, Julie actually developed pneumonia. <laughs> and uh, that allowed us to take her back to the hospital. So we got her back to Northwest Community Hospital. And from there, you know, they were able to take care of her properly. And they, um, you know, were just, you know, it was where, the, where she had to be. So during that time, First Press was very supportive. We had people coming and going. It was amazing to see the outreach of people that were caring for her and our family as well. So within two to three weeks, the, there's a protocol, obviously, when you're on a trach, and the trach came out. And so the doctors came in, and they basically they just pull it out of her throat. It's kind of gross. And uh, I'm sitting there thinking, well, what's going to happen? What are we going to find out? And uh, I heard her voice for the first time, and almost three months, and she said, Steve, <laughs> and um, needless to say, I broke down and uh, cried right there. I just couldn't hardly deal with it anymore, and, you know, it's just, uh, we didn't realize uh, until, of course, we started hearing from her that, you know, she lost her vision. Uh, she lost hearing in one ear, and so, uh, you know, that's really what we were left with, but she was still here. Um, the most amazing thing for me, and this is why she's become this uh, lighthouse person for me, is that the way she accepted this challenge. Um, she had to go through rehabilitation with no vision, <laughs> with no balance, without any of the things that she had about three months before. So she went through rehab and just grabbed it by the horns and went and went on and did this. And so 
you know, we tried to, all kinds of surgeries to correct her vision, took her down to Chicago, nothing really seemed to happen. And then finally we just accepted this lifestyle that uh, we were going to live without vision. You know, she's in a wheelchair just for my convenience. She can certainly walk. And that, you know, I just, uh, it, what this created was a new life for us. You know, we have our lake house, we have, our, of course, our grandkids. And, I, you know, it just our life has completely changed. And thoughts of uh, retirement, thoughts of, you know, the future are totally different than what they, than what they used to be. But um, through it all, you know, I'm grateful that she's still here with me um, and willing to work out these new challenges that we face almost every day. And through her determination to do what she's done, it's given me the strength to take care of her. And I think if I was, you know, taking care of somebody who was maybe not so nice, um, it may not be so easy. But for me, I've been blessed to have a wife that, um, you know, is really just unbelievable. So one last story. Um, I could go on, but um, we had another near miss July 29th. Uh, Julie had had, um, all her life, she had primary biliary cirrhosis, which is an autoimmune disease. She actually used to work for the village of Arlington Heights, and she was diagnosed uh, during an employee physical. Her liver enzymes were sky high. So she lived 30 years just by treating that with medication, but now we were coming to the point where the liver was completely cirrhosed, and uh, she was definitely suffering from that. So we had to... Um, um, find a, a donor, obviously. So we ended up um, several times, I'm skipping ahead here, several times there were life-threatening events that happened. One time she came into the, in the house, we just brought her back, and she had a bleeding episode, so she was actually throwing up blood through, you know, you can imagine where. And um, another episode was when she was transported by a helicopter from Northwest Community Hospital to Northwestern in Chicago. Uh, she claimed she took 30 units of blood, and uh, I'm not exactly sure that's the right number, but I know she, she got a lot of blood on that transport. Um, so it took more than um, four months to find a donor. I finally gave up at Northwestern. Again, Julie is kind of getting worse. She was very very bad. So I gave up at Northwestern. I took her off the transplant list. I moved her to Madison, Wisconsin. And within about a month and a half, she had a, found a donor. Obviously, it was a deceased donor who we're grateful for forever. They gave her a liver, and uh, she was able to get one. So this was on the day after Thanksgiving 2009 that Julie got a liver transplant. Um, so through it all, uh, our faith has been tested, uh, but God has always been there. God has answered our prayers. I mean, I, I'm totally amazed by what he's done for us. He's blessed me with a beautiful wife, beautiful kids, beautiful grandkids. And it's just uh, our life has been, you know, turned upside down. She's lost her independence. That's one of the things that hurts her the most is she can't do things. And so it, uh, you know, I've, I've taken on that role of being a caregiver for her, which there's nothing more important than to be a caregiver, I believe. And so through it all, Julie has never complained. Um, she gets frustrated. Believe me, she gets frustrated. 
but she's never complained about how her life is, and she always always says, you know, I, I remember when I could see. I had I remember those days when I could see. So she has that memory, and she's like, thank goodness I had my vision all that all that time before I went blind. And so, you know, <laughs> she's uh, been the lighthouse in my life, and um, just an inspiration to me. And you know, I thank God every day that uh, she's still with me, and we have another day. And, um, you know, I look at people who uh, are missing their loved ones, and, you know, this is a, a challenge that we all face. And so I'm just very grateful that Julie's still here with me. So thank you for your attention. <laughs> All right, so our next storyteller is Stephanie Weiss, and uh, I just want to tell you a little bit about Stephanie first before she comes up, because I think it's really cool. She um, is not a member of our church, but she has been coming for the last two years to our family night. She's always there serving dinner, and she came up to me after the last one. She said, do you think I could tell a story? And I said, absolutely, you can tell a story. So uh, I'm really excited to invite her up tonight. Uh, she's a very important part of our family night community. So invite Steffi Weiss to the stage. <laughs> Hello. Uh, I just wanted to say that coming here on Wednesday nights, everyone has been so kind. Everyone has been so nice to me and my little sister. Just everyone has been super nice. I haven't met anybody here that I didn't like. So thank you for welcoming me to your church. Um, my story is about my little brother, Nicholas. Um, my brother Nicholas was born a completely healthy baby. He met all his milestones. He played with my older sister and I, played with kids. My mother ran a kindergarten or a daycare and he would play with all the other kids, watch TV, played outside. And then one day it was like a light switch turned off. He no longer responded to his own name, no longer played with my older sister or myself or any of the other kids. My mother knew something was wrong, so she took him from doctor to doctor, and they all just kept telling us the same thing. Oh, well, he has two older sisters who wait on him, wait on him hand and foot. He doesn't feel the need to express his own needs when they already do it for him. Months and months passed by, and he became dangerously thin for a toddler. He would spin around in circles for hours, and he would never be dizzy. And finally, one day, we received a diagnosis. It was autism. Autism is a disorder that disrupts your ability to communicate with others. He couldn't tell us if he was hungry or thirsty or even in pain. This often led him to, left him to throw tantrums and harm himself and others. He would leave my mother cut up and bruised from attacking her when he felt upset, and she would yell for my sister and I to go lock ourselves in our room until he calmed down. The worst is when he would harm himself. He would sometimes punch himself so hard in the face that the room was left all bloody like a murder scene. Autism is 24-7, 365 days a year. It's never going to go away, and it changed our lives forever. 
Families that include a child with autism tend to be ostracized, not only by society in general, but by family and friends and even other church members. Nicholas in public would flap his arms up and down and spin around in circles and repeat the same sentence over and over. People looked at him as a child that was misbehaving or needed discipline. And soon we stopped being invited to family functions and parties. When we would go to uh, pools or public parks, parents would take one look at Nicholas and remove their children immediately as if autism was contagious. At a very young age, I learned what it meant to be isolated and rejected by everyone. When I was in second grade, my family and I moved to a mainly Hispanic community. I didn't know anybody at my new school, so I tried to make some new friends. And then, although all the teaching was done in English there, almost all the students spoke Spanish as their first language. So during recess and lunchtime, I was unable to communicate with them. Soon I became the outcast, and soon after that, I started to be bullied. And what was worse was when they were bullying me, I couldn't understand what they were saying about me. The situation that I was in was very similar to what my brother was going through. Like I said, autism is a communication disorder. People are unable to communicate with you, and you are unable to com communicate with them. But I saw how my brother went through it, and he was happy every day. It helped me get through it, too. It was a hard year for me, but it was only one year of my life. My, bro my brother will struggle with these issues for a lifetime. He will never have a friend to tell stupid jokes with. He will never have a girlfriend. He'll never be married. He'll always be dependent on my parents or myself. Nicholas completely relies on other people to include him in human, in human contact and interaction. After that year, my family and I moved to Wisconsin, and I now lived in a predominantly English-speaking community. And now that I was able to communicate with my peers again, I felt compelled to be kind and influence others to be kind, especially other students that went through the same thing that I went through. I couldn't stand to see them go through what I went through alone and what my brother went through alone. Our family lived in Wisconsin for about 10 years, and my father's hours started to get cut back. We eventually lost our home. It was very devastating and scary. We looked into shelters, but because of my brother's autism being so disruptive, we were unable to. We ended up staying in a hotel that was one bedroom, all six of us, and that just took up almost my father's entire paycheck. We, they offered free breakfast in the morning, and we would try to carry as much food as we could to last throughout the day, and at night we would walk to McDonald's and order off the dollar menu. But Nichols didn't understand what was going on. He had a roof over his head, he was with his family, he ate every day, and he was loved. I think we all learned a lot from Nicholas that every situation is temporary and we'll get through it. And things did get better. The economy got better. My father ran into an old friend who gave him a job that offered plenty of work and plenty of hours. And then he ran into another friend from an old church in Illinois who offered to rent us a home which we were unable to before because of my parents' credit score being so bad. But the home was in Illinois, so we started a new life in this area. 
things were not as hopeless as we thought. And we did learn a lot from Nicholas from that. You never know who God will use to bring you out of a dark hole. It's best just to wake up each morning knowing every situation is temporary. It's always a happy ending. If it's not happy, it's not the end. We thought we had no one to turn to. And then a fa- my, one of my father's friends found him a job unexpectedly. And another friend found him a new house unexpectedly. I learned from my brother that stressing out changes nothing. And I learned what a difference someone can make by helping someone out when they are so down and alone. You think families with a child with autism would be angry at the world and upset, but we have a child that is happy and makes our day every single day. We have all been taught the golden rule, do unto others as you would have done to you. But my brother has taught me that's not enough. We must also remember the quote famously said by Abraham Lincoln, all it takes for evil to triumph is for good men to do nothing. Throughout my brother's entire school years, he was never invited to a single birthday party. I think that most parents teach their children not to bully and to be kind to others. But ignoring someone because they're different is simply just another form of bullying. We need to teach our children to be the person who befriends the friendless and stands beside the persecuted. Thank you. So next up, we have uh, Jim Graves, and he's going to tell a different kind of story. His story is called Many Beacons. Welcome, Jim, to the stage. Okay. So when uh, I was reading about the, the, the theme for tonight, it kind of intrigued me. And as, a, as opposed to what you're going to hear from, or what you've heard from others, when, when I was thinking about lighthouses and guiding lights, I kept thinking about how many times over a life experience you have a flash or you have a, a guiding light. So what, I, what I've got here tonight is, uh, again, a little bit different, but you know, it's going to tell you a little bit about things that have molded me. Um, <clears throat> A little bit different flavor on some of these. So I've got a series. Some of them aren't very positive. In fact, uh, some of them may be perceived as a little bit negative, but we learn in a lot of different ways. So there are positive stories, there are negative stories, and, and I think everything that we experience or everything that guides us or everything that molds us, you know, helps form who we are. So who we are, who I am, I'm a very analytical person. Uh, so when I, when I stepped back and I started thinking about this, I had to think about what is a lighthouse and all kinds of stuff. So I'm going to give you a little bit of that stuff. So what is a lighthouse? You know, you look in the dictionary, good old Merriam-Webster, your other personal favorite. You know, a lighthouse marks hazards and shows the way. Lighthouse warns of risks and identify clear passages. So, so you've got both going on at the same time. You've got the positive and the negative and, and the yin and the yang. One has 
hundreds if not thousands of encounters over a lifetime that, that leave a lasting impression or a lasting memory or you know, a, a little bit of a sense of guidance. You never know when you're going to encounter one of these. Sometimes you're seeking them out. Sometimes they're revealed in unexpected situations, you know, the last thing you would imagine. Sometimes you see them way off in the distance. You see a glow in the distance, and you know you've got to get there. Sometimes it's like right in your face, totally unexpected. Sometimes it's a strong, steady beacon. Sometimes it's a flashing, revolving light. Sometimes it's quick. And sometimes we're just absolutely left in the dark with, with no guidance whatsoever. Sometimes we're explicitly aware. But most often, I've found that you, you figure this out after the fact based on reflection. All this kind of stuff leads to uh, a contribution for for personal growth and, and uh, moving forward. Lots of things can be lighthouses. Music can be a lighthouse. You know, you can, you can think of your favorite song or a song in your life, and I've got more than one as my wife is smiling at me going, don't talk about it. Um, but you know, lyric, lyrics, especially to my generation, lyrics meant a lot. And I've got lyrics that go through my head every day. Um, Books are a lighthouse. Think of, think of the learning and the guidance that you get from whatever book it happens to be that, that, you, that you're reading. Conscience is a lighthouse. One of the things I used to tell my staff when I was working, you know, you're making decisions, think of Yosemite Sam cartoons, you've got an angel on one shoulder and a devil on the other shoulder, and you're trying to figure out what's the right way to go. You know, that's, that's a lighthouse moment in, in many ways. Compassion science, education, there's just so many things that all factor into this. But most of all, it's people. People are the ones that, that leave these types of impressions. So, enough introduction. Uh, here we go with a handful of vignettes or stories or, 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 or points that, uh, that have had some pretty strong meaning to me. As a young boy, the, uh, one of the traditions in our family is that we would frequently spend Saturday evenings at my grandparents' house. Always a treat, always involved some ice cream, and grandma would make some really good stuff. But one of the things that, that was meaningful, and I, I'm a born and raised Chicagoan, Saturday night, 7 o'clock, my grandfather and I would put on coats or, or whatever the season was, take a walk down Montrose Avenue to the local store and buy the three Saturday night versions of the Sunday paper. I explicitly remember, and, and I've brought this up often over my life, one, one time I was maybe five, six, seven years old, and there had been some type of crime or murder or whatever, and my grandfather was just really agitated as we were walking back to the house with, uh, with the newspapers more so than I'd ever seen him in my life. And this was a very unusual state for my grandfather. So, you know, as we were walking home, he was kind of ranting, uh, didn't fully understand it, but the part that I fully remember, it's important to be a good person, and he was just stressing this. It's important to be a good person. Take care of your name. It's the only thing that you own 
It's the only thing that you have when you're born. It's the only thing that you have when you die. Don't do anything to spoil your name. Make sure it's a good one. You know, strange message to a five or six-year-old walking down the street, but you know, all these years later, when I think of my grandfather, that is one of the first things that pops to mind. And it's something that I think he would hopefully be proud of that I have tried to live. But, you know, when I think of moments, that's a flash, and it's really stuck with me. Flash forward a little bit. Fifth grade, classmate comes over to our house to play. We had a, uh, a female cat when I was growing up that we just couldn't seem to get neutered, so we constantly had kittens in the house. <laughs> One of the things that was uh, traditional when friends would come over to play is we'd always do a fly by the kittens and see what was going on and then go about our way. So this, this guy comes over and uh, we do our normal flyby and we go off and we're playing again. You know, we're, we're fifth graders. A little bit of time goes by, the mother cat starts yowling the way cats do when they're looking for something. Turns out my friend had taken the kittens, put them in a burlap bag, tied a rope around it, and stuffed it in a drawer in the garage. So my mother, you know, obviously once she found this out, sent them home immediately. End of a friendship, never played with him again. And you know, grade school, we went through school together. Cruelly the defenseless has no excuse. You know, again, resonate, we have fresh kittens in our house, resonates with me. You know, instant flesh. You don't, you know, it's kind of teaching you know, right from wrong, what do you do, what do you not do? Father's guidance can be subtle. Teenagers roll eyes. Geez, what is he doing now? Um, can you believe he's really doing this? Turns into a, a level of appreciation. Creativity, spirit of getting things done, uh, spirit of accomplishment. Often what seems impossible is doable. Have a swampy piece of land, rent a bobcat and knock the hill down and fill the swamp. Need to move a boathouse? Cut down two, three trees, roll them under the boathouse, and push the boathouse to where you want it to be. Need to relocate an outhouse? Grab a shovel and start digging. Kitchen sink leaking, leaking, leaking drain under the sink. Hardware stores are closed. Oh, a car radiator hose works. That radiator hose was still on my, the house in my mother's house when we sold it last summer. <laughs> Maybe not perfect solutions, but a get-it-done, can-do spirit, you can achieve almost anything. You know, really a lasting thing that, uh, that my dad left with me, and my wife can probably uh, add examples that I, I do the same way. Twelve-year-old, 12 years old in the mid-60s, or the early 60s, trip to Little Rock to see my... Uh, uncle, aunt, and cousins who had moved down there a couple years before. Nice visit, picnic in the park on a Saturday. White only and black only, 
restrooms and water fountains. I was just a northern boy. That's just not right. College. Trip to a friend's wedding. Late at night, we're heading back to school after the, after the ceremony. We're out in the middle of western Illinois, and it is dark. Ugh, we just hit a raccoon. A few miles later, the car swerves. I'm a passenger in the car. What are you doing? Well, I'm trying to intentionally hit the animals that are crossing the road. That was the end of that friendship. <laughs> who, would it, who would intentionally inflict, inflict harm on the defenseless? Father's Guidance, part two. And there's actually many, many parts to Father's Guidance, but somewhere along the way, something happened. Creativity stopped. Can-do approach evaporated. Too many cigarettes, too many unhealthy meals, way too much beer. Grossly overweight. Almost totally inactive. Never knew the whys. Suspect it had something to do with job-related stress. But I knew I couldn't be like that. you got to take care of yourself. Not just for yourself, but for those around you. Mom and dad, deeply in love. Always expressed hopes for the future. If I heard him say once, I heard him say a thousand times, once we retire, we are going to do, and they had a list that was this long. My dad died at 48. I was 23. I retired last year. I did not wait. I've lived life day to day as fully as I possibly can. So, probably not the most spiritual examples. I could, I could hit you with a bunch more, but you kind of see how that ties back to my thought of you never know when it's going to hit you, and you never know what it's going to be. We all experience uh, moments throughout our lives that you, know, you may not recognize it while it's happening, but after the fact, things that help mold and guide and inform who we are. Thank you. All right, our last story for the evening comes to us from Terry Stanley. Now, Terry, you may know, uh, she, her, her daughter actually did this last time, and so we're going to get the whole family up here eventually. We'll, we'll, just get, we'll keep rotating them in. So anyways, I want you to welcome her to the stage, but aren't I already happy? <laughs> Someone once told me that he didn't think I believed I deserved to be happy. But wasn't I already happy? I was married, I had two kids, we had a house in the suburbs, and we grew roots in a great community. I had a career, but I was also able to stay at home. We had friends, family, and lots and lots of interests. So why then did I always feel like something was missing? 
What in the world didn't I have? In order to understand what it was that was missing from my life, I have to go back to my childhood. I'll start by saying I love my family. Even though we had our struggles, I wouldn't trade one struggle or one person. All have made me who I am today. But there were struggles. My mom was an alcoholic. She was a gem when she was sober, but she was the opposite when she was not. And my parents had a messy divorce when I was eight years old. Needless to say, I spent a lot of time back then surviving. Now, don't get me wrong, there were good times, too. We celebrated accomplishments, birthdays, vacations, and all sorts of things like that. Um, every, but when crisis erupted, everyone went into crisis mode, and we all had our different ways of dealing with the crisis at hand. As a result, I learned early and often that I needed to ignore my own emotions and be strong. When I look back now, I can see that those were the seeds in the beginnings of me not believing I deserved to be happy. We had a housekeeper who lived with us when I was growing up. She also worked for two other families in the neighborhood, but she lived with us. She had a bedroom in the basement, and when crisis erupted, I escaped there. She had a treasure trove of containers beneath her bed. Thing, tins filled with things like buttons and jewelry and old letters and magazine clippings that were a haven for this little girl. I felt welcome and safe to dive beneath her bed and delve through her treasures. While Johnny Carson hosted her favorite show, she would knit and I would rummage. The storm would eventually pass, and if I hadn't fallen asleep already, she would take me back to my room. Leela was a lighthouse in every sense of the word. One of the things I did not experience during my childhood was being athletic. I was more the musical type. And even though I had some musical accomplishments, I still felt like something was missing. So I decided to try out for the girls' softball team. To give you an idea of how unathletic I was, Rather than reject me outright, the coach made me the team scorekeeper. <laughs> yeah. Needless to say, that was the beginning and the end of my athletic career. Until I turned 40. I decided that year, for my birthday, I would forego the spa day I had planned and instead purchase some sessions with a personal trainer. My initial goal was just to get into shape, but through a series of strange coincidences, I ended up hiring a trainer who specialized in triathlons. Now, this was something I had no experience with. So Brett would become a lighthouse, guiding me on this new physical journey. I came to him filled with self-doubt. He told me from the early weeks of our partnership that I had more ability than I would give myself credit for, but that I was going to need to believe that. I almost quit many times, as every aspect of the sport challenged me in many ways. But I kept coming back, and every time I did, he would meet me with another challenge. 
If I was excited, I ran 15 minutes, he'd say, next time, make it 20. When I started to lap people in the pool and grow comfortable in my lane, he simply moved me to the faster lane. I remember one time I was very excited I finished my first spin class, full effort. And his response, next time, stay for the second class. So you can see why I threatened to quit many times, but I never did. What I was slowly accomplishing here was keeping me coming. Hard work and determination through the next year ended with me on the finish line of my first race. There was no denying what I was capable of now, and I could now kind of call myself athletic. <laughs> and even though I did the work and I followed the program, it would not have been possible at that time in my life without the encouragement and the guidance of my trainer, Brett. I remember being on the finish line of that first race. I was about 500 yards from the finish, actually. The course curved out just a little bit, and suddenly Brett ran alongside me for a brief moment. You're almost there, he said, and then he faded back, saying, it's all you. When I looked up and saw the finish banner above, I finished with a feeling I will never forget. Physically, I had never felt better or more accomplished, and now something had been set in motion that I could rely on for the rest of my days. So why then did I still feel like something was missing? An honest look in the mirror would reveal I was tapped out spiritually. Sure, I belonged to a great church. It was part of my happiness resume. You remember the one with the husband and the kids and the community? We were involved. Our kids were involved. We were regular attenders. The problem was, even though I was doing all the right things, I wasn't feeling happy. Something was broken on the inside, and I wasn't fully acknowledging it. Um, despite my somewhat successful outward self, I was filled with a great sense of unworthiness, quite like I didn't believe I deserved to be happy. How I came to realize this was through a series of conversations with my pastor. Alex had been at the church for about six months. I never actually met him, but I had heard him preach several times. And there was something different about Alex. And he was polished for sure, but that's not what was different. What was different was what came through every time I heard him preach, a vulnerability. This was someone who was willing to share himself and wasn't afraid to show emotion. There was an honesty and a humility. Maybe he could help me somehow. I thought about making an appointment to meet with him, but then my good friend, self-doubt, reminded me I had been on this route before. Counselors, um, workshops, journaling, retreats. What would talking to a pastor make anything different? So I did not go and talk to Alex. Until very late that spring, I was finishing up a workshop in Evanston. Yes, it was another workshop. It was a great workshop. But about halfway home, that same empty feeling began to sink in. What 
was wrong with me? Why did this keep happening? I needed to talk to someone. So instead of going home that day, I ended up at the church. It was a Wednesday, so it was that Wednesdays with Pastor Alex. I could see that people were gathering in the parlor as I pulled up in my car. I didn't, I had never attended Wednesdays with Pastor Alex. I didn't know what it was. I didn't know anything about it, but I did know that I needed to talk to someone. So I walked in, wet from the rain, um, halfway through, and sat in the only empty seat in the room. The room grew quiet. <laughs> and, uh, but Alex looked at me and he smiled. I didn't know what to do, so I simply said, um, I need to talk to you when you're done. Sure, he said, we can talk in my office. We ended up meeting several times in his office. And what I noticed right away was the person in the office was the same person that came through that polished exterior on Sunday mornings. It was in that context that I was able to open myself up to the possibility of getting to the other side of this emptiness. Alex helped me come up with a plan that, to face what was keeping me so unhappy. He encouraged me to let myself off the hook for any of this that was placed on me by others, but at the same time, he made it clear I would need to be willing to look and see my part as well. There were times I called on Alex, and he made himself available to me, and times we didn't talk for several weeks, but I knew he was there. It didn't happen overnight, but things did turn around. And I'm happy to report that I am now on the other side of the emptiness I was feeling in my life. A beacon of light that guides or warns, Alex became a spiritual lighthouse. To be guided by these lighthouses in my life, I needed to change. I needed to allow myself to go to Leela for comfort, but first, I needed to believe that I deserved to be comforted. And I needed to push myself with my trainer, Brett. But first, I had to recognize I was living life filled with self-doubt, believing I was incapable. And finally, I needed to get to the bottom of my pain. But first, I needed to trust Alex enough to open up. So, am I happy? Yes, definitely. Sometimes I am very fulfilled and happy, and sometimes I'm not. The difference is now I believe I deserve to be happy. Thank you. Let's give one more round of applause for all of our storytellers tonight. So there is out in the Narthex area, there's going to be a little reception. I hope that you will take the time. In fact, I'm going to tell them because they don't usually do this. I'm going to tell them to go now. I want you to go out now because usually what happens is they get stuck here and then they don't get out. So I'm going to ask them to leave and head out there. And then I hope that you'll go. There is cake waiting for you, okay? And you know how we like our cake here in the church, right? So there's cake out there. Um, 
and then I want to uh, just tell you and invite you to the next one, which I believe is July 18th, and the theme for that particular evening is going to be, we're not in Kansas anymore. Stories of ending up in unexpected places. So if there's, if that theme resonates with you, that idea, uh, please tell me, uh, come and pitch a story to me, and we'd love to have you up here. So again, I want to thank you for coming out. Thank you for taking the time to support our storytellers, and go have some cake and go talk to them, okay? Have a good evening, everybody. Thanks for listening. And if you want to learn more about First Presbyterian Church of Arlington Heights, please visit www.fpcah.org for more information on service times, directions, and to learn more about the First Pres family of faith.